listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Welcome to Breakfasters podcast for the week Monday, April 10 to 15. A few highlights this week. Uh, we had a talkback section where we asked people to call in and tell us their Australian money slang terms. Some good ones in there. Also, we had Kelly O'Shaughnessy from the Australian Conservation Foundation uh, talking about the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. And Diane McGrath, who's a Mars One candidate. Yes, right. She wants to go to Mars. She came in and talked about that. And then uh, for Record Store Day, Nate Not from Polyester was in chatting about all things vinyl. Excellent week, guys. Kelly O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of, Australia, of the Australian Conservation Foundation. She joins us in the studio now. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Recently, Terry Hughes from James Cook University reported on what he called the saddest research trip of my life. His survey concluded that 95% of reefs from Cairns to Papua New Guinea are now severely bleached. What does this mean? Well, it's, it is true. So really the northern half of the Great Barrier Reef has bleached and why it bleaches is because the animals and the algae that uh, make up coral, um, the algae actually get expelled from the coral and it's the algae that actually give the coral colour and uh, it leaves them deathly white. Uh, and they do that because the waters are too warm, basically, and it's a bit of a self-defence mechanism by the coral itself uh, and the algae actually becomes toxic for it so it's just trying to survive but without the algae it actually slowly um, it stops feeding and it can't actually continue to live without the algae for long periods of time so uh, corals can come back from bleaching but a percentage of the corals that are currently bleached which is 1,000 kilometres of coral will die and we don't really know how much yet the scientists tell us it really depends if the water temperature starts dropping a bit more rapidly uh, from now on then more coral will survive but it continues to be warm then more coral will die and of course with global warming and bleaching is a hundred percent a result of warmer waters and global warming uh, this bleaching will happen more often and the corals just simply aren't going to have time to recover so the reef is in real danger because of global warming and particularly because of the way that we produce our energy through coal and that bleaching then presumably means that all the ecosystem around the reef will then die as well. Yeah, so I was up on the reef last week at Heron Island, which is actually on the southern, very southern part of the reef. And Heron Island has avoided the worst of the bleaching, but there's still bleaching areas. And even I, not being an expert on coral at all, if you swim over, you can easily tell the difference between a healthy, beautiful reef where it was gorgeous and there was fish and reef sharks and stingrays. And it's the fish that blow your mind because they're just every colour and there are thousands of them in front of your face and turtles and it's amazing and beautiful and and if we lose the coral then we lose the fish and if we lose the fish we lose um, beauty but we also lose an important ecosystem of life really because these are nurseries for fish and those fish grow up to be bigger and we eat those fish you know so the world is interconnected and we can't afford to lose the reef the other great thing about the reef is it actually protects eastern Australia from the waves and the ocean and it's actually an incredibly important thing for for human life and also for life of the, the, the fish and the turtles and the stingers and other things. So how long have we been aware that bleaching has been occurring? Has this been something that we've been aware of for a while now? Actually the, it, it never really occurred before 
1970s and there weren't any global events before the 1980s and there's been three global bleaching events so we are seeing another one right now a global event it's not just the reef great barrier reef that's in trouble and so the scientists can track it completely against uh, rising emissions uh, pollution from things like burning coal and warmer waters and we've got to remember the poor old ocean has actually absorbed a lot of the warmth um, caused by global warming and it's done more than its fair share to absorb that warmth but we are then seeing of course horrible things like coral bleaching and we were up there with scientists last week and I my heart goes out to everyone who loves the reef uh, but the scientists who have been there for 20 years and studying it and have been telling the, the politicians for 20 years or 30 years we know what's causing this and we know how to fix it and they just turn in a blind eye. That's the saddest thing. Mm. In fact, not only turning a blind eye, just after this news came out, we learned that the Labor government in Queensland had just granted a mining licence yeah. for Adani to dig Australia's biggest coal mine. Yep. What effect will this have on the roof? Well, that coal mine, uh, Carmichael coal mine up in Queensland, uh, will, when the coal is burnt, uh, it will put billions and billions of uh, tonnes of pollution up into the atmosphere, greenhouse or carbon pollution, and that will warm the planet further and that will may very well be the death knell for the great... Barrier Reef, combined with the pollution that Australia is already putting up in the atmosphere and, and around the world. What we need to do and what we agreed, the world agreed to do in the Paris Climate Talks was to drastically reduce greenhouse pollution and so to the extent that we can limit global warming to 1.5 degrees which actually is there to save the reef and to save low-lying islands of which people of course live on so that their islands aren't flooded if we exceed that we the reef will be in trouble now we are at one degree already of of worldwide warming i know people go wow one degree i won't tell the difference but what it that's an average global temperature what it means is the hottest days um, in Melbourne, for example, might start becoming 47, 48, and you might start seeing that more regularly. And of course, waters are going to warm and the reef will be in trouble. So coral and coal can no longer coexist and we have to stop burning coal. We have to phase out our existing coal. So it's ludicrous to approve one of the world's biggest coal mines, um, which will be essentially a carbon bomb and really threaten basically life on earth including our own now that's drastic but that's how serious climate change is but everyone listening we know how to solve this problem we've just got to make sure that the politicians actually get on with solving the problem it all sounds um almost hopeless because it's but there must be something that we can do on an individual basis Yes, so you know what? Energy and how you get your energy is the biggest uh, form of pollution on the planet and in Australia. So in Australia, we have a lot of coal. It's very cheap and that has provided electricity for Australians. The best thing that people can do, there's two things you can really do. One, really seriously have a look at where you get your energy from and where have a look at ACF's website. We're running a Generate the Change campaign where we've identified some energy suppliers that supply 100% clean electricity. They do it at lower prices than the big energy companies who are all invested in coal. These power companies we recommend aren't invested in coal. So that's one thing you can do. And you do that straight away. It's really easy. I did it a couple of years ago, rang up and they did all the change for me. And I've got to say, I was actually already buying green electricity from one of the bigger energy companies, but I didn't want to give them my money, you know, because they <laughs> are behind these big coal mats. But the second most powerful thing is we are not going to be able to change our energy systems in this country unless we get government leadership. And so actually, 
actually writing to your MP or emailing your MP or getting involved in any of the activities of the groups that are working on trying to switch from coal to clean energy like ACF um, can make an enormous difference. Advocacy is a very powerful tool and it's always created great change in the world, but we need a lot of people to speak up. Because if anything, it seems like government policy has gone backward on this. I mean, John Howard accepted the science of climate change and said that something needed to be done about it, whereas today we've got Liberals who say that coal is good. And as I said, this is a Labor government doing this. Yes, uh, that's right. So neither side of politics has really been good enough on on climate change and they aren't brave enough to say clean energy is the future, we've got to move there. Now, the ALP have got some good um, policies at the federal level which they've announced, so they want to put a half of Australians' uh, energy from renewables by 2030. They're not in government, of course, and, and if they did win government, they would need to actually deliver on what they said. So... Um, Politicians listen to the people who vote them in. They've got a huge vested interest in being re-elected. And I don't think Australians really understand the power of our democracy if we get together and we get organised and we start putting pressure on them on this issue and other issues that are are close to our heart. Those um, beautiful images of the Franklin River became a kind of um, galvanising symbol for the environment movement back in the day. I mean, the Great Barrier Reef is one of the most spectacular wonders of the world. Is it possible this could be a flashpoint for a new environment movement? Yeah, it is. It is actually. We're taking the government to court for the Carmichael coal mine approval and the actual basis on which we're doing it is they haven't considered the pollution that will come from burning the coal, the mine's coal, and they haven't considered the impact that will have on the Great Barrier Reef, which they are required to do under national law. And that national law was written just before the Franklin to save the Franklin. It's the same piece of law. And actually, ACF's president at the time wrote it and convinced um, the Prime Minister to actually adopt it. And uh, that was the law where the big Franklin case was fought over between state and federal governments. Um, So it's an amazing thing that 30 years later we're using the same law. That has never been tested on climate change before. And if we are successful, then it will set a precedent in Australian history on the environment. It might be the very last time a government tries to approve and support a coal mine. Is the rest of the world aware of what's happening? So is this being reported around the world? Because I feel like Australia could do with a bit of a global shaming process maybe to kind of... Uh, Yes, the rest of the world knows exactly where Australia stands on climate change. Now, the um, Prime Minister Turnbull was well received at the Paris talks because, of course, he followed um, Prime Minister Abbott, who was just shocking. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of like the world has said, okay, well, you're no longer shocking, but you're at the bottom end of your commitments to reduce pollution. So other countries, since Paris, which was in December, other countries have acted to get rid of coal mines, including the US and China, and Australia is acting to increase coal mines. So the rest of the world knows that we're not doing our fair share. Um, And they're moving forward much faster. That's a real problem for us in our community because we only left behind. Um, so, look, if we keep going like this, in time, I don't know when that time is, the UN and other countries are going to start actually calling Australia out for what it is. And on the reef itself, it has been noticed around the world. So David Attenborough's series is on at the moment, uh, was on Sunday night, and I think it's a two- or three-part series. And he has even spoken up and had a bit of a go at... Minister Hunt, who is the Environment Minister, who said, the reef's healthy, there's no problem here, look away, look away. And David Attenborough said, well, maybe you should actually watch the end of the series. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Kelly O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of Australian Conservation Foundation. Thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. 
You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Earlier in the show, we talked about the new design of the $5 note and the ridiculous anger surrounding it and how silly that is. But we were talking about different slang terms for different notes because you guys hadn't heard of it before. Not one. No, never. I've never heard it called a lobster or a pineapple or a... And basically, I thought I might like to open up the phone line so people can back me up (laughs) on this, that there are many slang terms for... For different, for all the different notes. Um, like, for example, we did have um, people call us earlier. Like, there's a guy that called earlier and he calls a $5 note a Michelle. Um, because. Michelle Pfeiffer. I like that. That's my favourite so far. It's, it's That's pretty good, isn't it? A lobster so, please back me up on this. If you do have slang words and we want to hear ones that we haven't heard before, just call 93881027. Alternative, if you don't want to back her up, you want to back us up, you can also call. Well, yeah. well I think we <laughs> that have, would be so we interesting. Have, I think we have someone calling through now, although they could just be ringing to, for some other reason. Hello, you're live on Triple R. How are you going? Hello. No, just, oh, that was good. Maybe he was just calling it's to, right, to right, subscribe. Oh, hello, you're on Triple R. G'day, how are you going? Yeah, good, mate. Who are, you, who are we speaking with? Andrew. Oh, g'day, Andrew. You're live on air now. Why? Are you ringing about the $5 notes? I am, I am. Um, uh, I grew up in an environment where I don't think they were ever called by the, uh, their face value. So um, Really? What did you call them? So a $1 bill was a, um, um, was a turd. A two dollar, a two dollar bill. Two dollar was a was a frog. A five was a slap, and a ten was a bruise. But why? Why? How did those names come about? I I I really don't know their origin, but it was from you know beer drinking uncles and whatnot. They just uh, that's 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 how they referred to them. But um, where whereabouts was whereabouts was this? uh, that was uh, those days eastern eastern suburbs. uh, Ringwood area and that in those days. Love it. Not love just a country it. thing. I'm surprised anyone could communicate with anyone. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, Bougainville is we used to call it, but um, <laughs> what do you yeah. think about the five dollar note? It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's disgusting. But yeah, um, get rid of that. I've, All right. I've got the, I've got the rest of the list for you if you want. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, so the twenty was the uh, 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 the lobster or the cray. Uh, the 50 was a GDV or a golden retriever, and the GDV was a golden drink voucher. And the um, that's right, uh, yeah, I've heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. and the hundred, the hundred was usually a grey nurse or a Mawson. That's that's how I remember it. But um, grey yeah. nurse, oh, because the shark. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Been, um, Same colour as shark. Yeah. I call it, yeah. Just grey, yeah, yeah. Like I said earlier, I called I called the hundred dollar note a lettuce. Because oh, I've, okay. yeah, I've got heaps of them. Just make a salad with it every day. <laughs> Just <a> Wikipedia <laughs> has this huge list thank of you. them. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, thanks for calling, mate. appreciate that. You've got one person who's back, Jez, up. So thank I appreciate you. That's it. Enough. That's, <laughs> a, That's a, enough. A silent majority is on our side. <laughs> Wikipedia's got this long list. $5 note is also called a piglet and a rasher. As yeah, because it's pink. Yeah, a fiver. Well, a fiver, obviously. A stewy diver. In reference to Stewie Diver, so I guess it's rhyming slang. Yes. God, um, some of the others um, are a bit obscene, so maybe we won't, <laughs> <laughs> we, won't go in, we won't go into that. Will we have someone else? Yeah, hey, you're in Triple R. Who are we speaking with? Oh, hello, sorry, just a quick one in relation to the dollars. Yes. Um, a 50 was an Hawaii. 
Bob. What? What's that? Oh yes! Oh yes! I love oh, that. Nice. I love the. I can go with the puns. I don't get the colours, but I love the puns. That's awesome. What's not to get about the colours? <laughs> what's, what's your take on the fi- on the new five dollar bill? Oh, who cares? And anyone that yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks for calling up. Bye-bye. Take care, bye bye. Take care. Oh, sorry. Oh, that wasn't very smooth of me, was it? Um, I think I think we've got someone else calling through as well. Uh, hello, you're on Triple R. G'day, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. How are you going? Good. Uh, I can always remember my old man used to refer to the $100 note as a clitoris because they were always hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. God, I think you've we're just... Wa- you've just... We're peaked, we're peaked. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Oh, my God. Was, Jess, I'm surprised you didn't come up with that one, to tell you the truth. Well, you know, maybe I did. No, I didn't. It was very good, though. <laughs> yeah, well, um... Yeah, Jeff, can you top that? <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Diane McGrath is a PhD researcher at RMIT, an ultramarathon runner, a candidate for the Mars One space mission. She's also the presenter at an event called Yuri's Night, which is taking place this Friday at the Planetarium at Spotswood. Welcome to Triple R. Hello. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good morning. Very good. Thank you. We've been very excited about having you on, so we're very good. (laughs) (laughs) So Yuri's Night, it's the World Space Party. That sounds pretty awesome. What is a World Space Party? What happens there? Uh, well, it celebrates the launch, the first human launch into space. So Yuri Gagarin, a cosmonaut, 12th of April, actually, so today, celebrates the day that uh, he first uh, orbited oh, the Earth. Back happy Yuri Day. Happy Yuri Day. 1961, so quite a few years ago wow. now. And uh, uh, and obviously it started off what has been the in- incredible exploration of, of our solar system to date and I think the start of what may come. Mm-hmm. What did they did they discover anything in particular on that first journey? Or it was really more about you know, doing it. Can we do it? Like, yeah. Can a human actually? There were so many, uh, I suppose, thoughts about what a human would respond, how it respond to being up in space. They really had no idea. They sent some animals up first, so as dogs, mm, and yes. chimpanzees, and things like that. Or like the dog. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, could a human survive? They didn't know. So it was really quite brave of Gagarin to do it. He was a test pilot, so not a surprise. He's prepared to do pretty risky things. Uh, but still, it, it was the first time we got to check, yes, we can survive in, in that sort of uh, environment. Pretty harsh, unusual, zero gravity, etc. Well, n- not zero gravity, but microgravity. Mm. Yeah, so it's pretty So cute. you and Yuri are similar people then, in some sense. <laughs> <laughs> not afraid to take some ri- calculated yeah. risks. Calculated, calculated risks. Calculated risks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so talking about calculated risks, you're, at this uh, Yuri's night, you'll be talking about the Mars One mission and you're an astronaut candidate for it. What is the Mars One mission? Yeah, the Mars One mission, it's the purpose of Mars One. It's a not-for-profit organisation internationally based in the Netherlands and their goal is to establish the first permanent human settlement on Mars. Um, so I'm one of the candidates, uh, the shortlisted 100 candidates worldwide who are uh, potentially going to be one of those astronauts. Uh, and so I'm lucky enough to be coming along to the event at ScienceWorks and, um, on the 22nd to talk about that and people can uh, buy tickets online at the ScienceWorks website. So you're one of now 100 candidates, if that's correct. correct. So how long until you find out 
how like how, when does the next Do list happen? Yeah, like when do you find yeah. out if you're one of the four? Oh, I know, very exciting. <laughs> um, so, the, well, the first day, the, well, the final stage of selection is still to come, um, and that we'll find out on the third of June. They're going to be announcing the date and place and everything for the last round of selection, uh, and that's when we'll know where we're going to go. And the hundred of us will get together and and go through a whole lot of um, team building and team dynamic testing and, and, and trials to see how well we can work as a group because uh, in, in the end, I mean, really, yes, we have to be astronauts. You've got to go in for the group interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can we? Oh, I think some of the stuff around how well do you deal with conflict, how inclusive are you, how do you solve problems, all that sort of stuff, and it's going to make a huge difference because you're not up there in space by yourself. You're a team of four. Um, so that will trim us down to 24 people and then those 24 will be trained for up to 10 years or more to be ready to go in, in crews of uh, four, so six crews of four. Wow. So, and, and you won't know until towards the end if you are the first crew to go. There has to be you know, lots of training and preparation to see who's going to be ready to roll on that day. So what have you done to get you here then? Like what have you – because I don't feel like I would be where you are. Like what, as a human being, what has qualified you to get to the top 100? Um, well, you know, it's funny. When I applied and I saw that over 200,000 people started the application process, I thought there's no way they're going to pick me. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that people yeah. from NASA were in the, the you know, the, the group and all the astrophysicists, all these super smart people um and then i sort of stopped and went oh you've got four university degrees you're not exactly a dim <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. so, so that helps that right helps. i'm sure that's helpful. i mean obviously you have to have the capacity to learn yeah. Uh, yeah and we're going to be trained on everything from medical procedures dental procedures uh, it fixing solar panels electronics everything um all the way down to growing food. So we, you need to have the capacity to learn and to, to solve problems. And so they've done a lot of psychological testing of this as well, so um, yeah. through the interview processes and the like, and to see do we have the right stuff. This um, One of the key aspects of this mission is the one-way mission. So yes. if you are selected, you won't be returning. It's um, also incredibly dangerous. Um, mm. So why do it? <laughs> well, I've never heard the question before. Uh, why? Why do we take any huge risk and challenge in our lives? And I mean, often it's, you know, some people decide they're, they're going to quit their job that they've been at for 20 years and do something totally different, follow their dreams, write a book, whatever. Uh, and it's really brave. You know, your heart sort of goes pound, pound, pound and you mm. take that step and you go, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. Uh, for me, this was not just about the exciting challenge, but I mean, this is humanity's next giant leap, isn't it? I mean, we, yeah. we stepped on the moon in 69 and what have we done since then? We've orbited this planet a lot in the space station and Mir <laughs> and Skylab and stuff like that, but we haven't gone any further than that. And there was something about that moment in time where that excited humanity and more people signed up to do a PhD then than any other time in history. So if we can get onto another planet and show we can survive another planet. What else can we do? It's boundless, I think. I think do it's you, exciting. Do you kind of feel like you've done a lot on it? You know, you've got four degrees, you're an ultra marathon runner, you've done heaps. Do you kind of feel like you've clocked Earth? And now you're... <laughs> and, bored. No, no. <laughs> done this planet, yeah, yeah, move on to the next one. No, it's, it's, it's a good point. Um, I guess for me it's around doing things that are purposeful. Mm. Uh, I mean, not my the PhD that I'm doing at RMIT is it's environmental economic, uh, sorry, environmental engineering, and and it's focused on food waste and trying to see if I can um, find a, an intervention that will help reduce food waste because it has a huge environmental mm. impact. Uh, some recent publications have shown if we reduce food waste, we can actually reduce a lot of the greenhouse gases that are causing the problems we're having. So. 
I'm trying to, if, even if I don't get to go to Mars, I'm doing something useful for this planet too. And so, yeah, I think there's always exciting things you can do. It's just whatever you're passionate about and find it and do it. Even though you're going to be leaving everyone, were this to come, you'd be yes. leaving everyone except for the people that you were with. Yes. You must be a good people person to be able to do this in addition to all these other skills because this is going to be you and three other human mm. beings. And is that something that, I guess they take into account when they've been talking to you. Or? It's an interesting paradox, isn't yeah. it, Sarah? I mean, you think about it, you've, you've got to have people who are good with other people but at the same time really comfortable with themselves. Mm. So you've got this really interesting, um, I guess, contradiction in the sort of person that you have to have uh, for these sorts of crews or, or missions. Um, for myself, I, I do work really well by myself but also play well with teams. I've played lots of you know sporting teams and worked in large groups that different um, work organisations to de- deliver on stuff. But um, so, yeah, that's, and that's actually what they're looking for in the next round of selection is all about team. Can you, how well do you work well with others? Are you, do you dominate or do you inclusively try to understand from other people how you can find other solutions? So, so that sort of stuff is what they're looking for. But at the same time, be self-reflective, like understand yourself and your strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Last year, um, one of the Mars One candidates, a former NASA researcher, said basically the project was a scam, <laughs> that the budget was out by a factor of 10. Others have said it's out by a factor of 100. Another advisor to the project, a theoretical physicist, says um, the technology doesn't exist to make this happen for the next 100 years. Do you think this project is, is possible? <laughs> I, um, I do think this is possible. I also think that you know, whether it's going to be Mars One that gets to Mars first or another agency, space agency such as NASA or private agencies such as SpaceX, you know, we will be on Mars in our lifetime. Um, people do challenge Mars One when it comes to the the feasibility of the the operations and i think the fact that it is one way makes it more feasible it doesn't have to invent return technology that's the big challenge that's what nasa is spending uh, a, a factor of like 100 or 10 times more in its forecast budget forecast than mars one would so we've, we can already land things on mars that's been happening you know for since the 60s so we can do this we just can't get anything back so, you know, we know that, um, the, the, I guess, the leap in technological advancement that needs to occur for humans to live on Mars is nowhere near as great as for humans to return from Mars. So it makes it much more feasible. Although if you've seen the film The Martian with Matt Damon, <laughs> I, have. I think there is a way to fling you back if there's a problem. Some very good-looking astronauts are going to come That's over and, yeah. And also, also take some potatoes with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Growing food, I think it's one of the first things we'll start to do when we get on the planet is plant stuff uh, in the hydroponic systems. Food. It'd be nice after seven months from Earth to Mars eating space food to crunch on a piece of lettuce. What is space food? Well, it's, de- it's usually dehydrated yeah. food. Oh. So you just but if you had a dehydrated strawberry, that is delicious. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. And if um, you don't make the cut or the, mm-hmm. the thing gets delayed, what would be your next challenge? Uh, well, I guess it's to continue what I'm doing with my PhD, see if I can implement what um, what I'm developing in relation to reductions in food waste, so those sorts of initiatives, to see if I can make a difference here on, on this planet. And and once that's completed, I'll, I'll continue finding other things I think are useful. I've always been involved with community organisations, not-for-profits, um, and I'm on the board of a couple of not-for-profits in the food security and food sustainability space. So uh, there's a lot of people who are hungry in this world, 
And, yeah. uh, I think we'll be very well. happy if you stay. As well. <laughs> <laughs> so Yuri's Night, it's on Friday the 22nd of April at uh, uh, um, at the Planetarium at Spot- Spotswood. Can people just rock up or how does it work? Yeah, uh, you can buy tickets online on the, the ScienceWorks website and they're, I think, um, between 30 and 35 bucks. Uh, DJs, um, drinks, snacks. They've also, as well as myself having a chat, they're also going to be showing um, food in the... Uh, food. <laughs> showing food, showing, showing a film in the planetarium, um, which will be fantastic. And uh, so that'll be going on for the night. Dawn um, of, the spa- in, of the Space Age. Dawn of the, the Space film. Age. Yes. Yeah, looking at the history of, of space exploration, but also where it's heading. And I think we're at this really interesting precipice of of what we're capable of outside of outside of this this globe mm. and also it's a world space party so that's got it to says be space cool. cocktails and yeah. food for earthlings will be available for purchase on the night <laughs> and a theme for best space and a prize for best space themed costumes oh, i hope yeah. some people really dress up, yeah. I, dress up I dare say they would <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking to Diane mcgrath uh, who's a candidate for mars one space mission and is speaking at yuri's night on uh, this friday thanks so much for coming <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Record Store Day is nearly upon us to tell us all about it. We've got in the studio Nate Knott from Polyester Records. How are you doing? Good, thanks. What um, is the aim of Record Store Day and how long has it been a thing? It started in 2009 in the States. It's a kind of a way to celebrate the cultural little hubs that are record stores. And it's spread around the world really quickly since then. And uh, kind of, it got a lot of attention from the limited edition releases that would come out on the day. And kind of their purpose was to release a record, whatever it might be, a reissue or something, you know, like a limited edition colour vinyl or something that would kind of, with the intent for it to sell out on the day. So you've got to make the effort to get to the shops and buy it on those days. It's kind of changed a little bit since then, hasn't it? Because it's expanded and there's different record store days. There's like a different one in America now to the one that is, exists in Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, well, the, the Australian Music Retail Association tried to get on board uh, a few years ago and they jumped right in and got the chain stores involved. So everybody kind of rolled their eyes at Amara for doing that and starting Record Store Day Australia. Um but since then, they kind of realised what the day is meant to be about. It's meant to be about independent record stores and not the chain stores and kind of celebrating the, the you know, the little shops that have kind of stuck on, stuck in there for the last, you know, few decades as all of the others were closing down. Yeah, I mean, you uh, you work at Polyester Records and Melbourne has such a great bunch of record stores. Like, I think it's maybe one of the healthiest cities in Australia for record stores. Amazing, yeah, How, in the world. Like, I think we've got say, more really? record stores per capita than any other city in the world. Really? Yep. That wow. actually kind of blows my mind. And yeah. really good ones as well. Damn straight. <laughs> uh, so, well, that means that we obviously have, like, an appetite for records and record stores. What do you think it is about Melbourne and record stores? I don't think it, like, I don't think it stopped. I just think it's a reflection of, like, we've also got, you know, an amazing amount of a population that goes out to so many shows and you know goes to so many events and to festivals like you know not just in music as well any kind of festival we'll go to like melbourne people just get out and they support things more than any other city in this country anyway when we're talking about records today a record store day are we talking about vinyl is it is it a celebration of vinyl or is it just yeah, recorded music in all its forms it's it really is kind of it's focused on vinyl, but it is about, you know, there's nothing, you know, I like people who still buy CDs as well and tapes and, you know, it's kind of any other format, but it's just a purchasing of physical format, I guess, is the focus. And, and we were talking about this what, a 
couple of weeks ago yeah. that that we had a news item about the the revival of vinyl sales. I know this has been kind of a perennial story that vinyl is back, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like a decade. <laughs> yeah. what, what is the story? I mean, are more acts releasing on vinyl now? Oh yeah, every, every you know, almost every release is coming out on vinyl. Some now only coming out on vinyl and not CD, but you know, digital format seems to kind of still be sticking around and, and vinyl has come back really over the last 10 years there's kind of the resurgence really started then but um uh yeah i think people just really like you know buying something and holding it in their hands and like you know what is a, a file on your computer <laughs> it doesn't so you know unromantic isn't it mm. and it is nice just to yeah like you say just hold it in your hand and then you can look at the cover and turn it over and sit there and you know really in, listen to the whole thing whereas you know online it's just Oh, yeah. Yeah, next, next. Yeah. yeah. You've also, I've spoken about this before too, but like it's become so popular that major artists are releasing, like Taylor Swift is releasing limited edition vinyl and stuff like that as well now, right? Yeah, that's it. And that's kind of where a bit of the criticism on Record Store Day has come in the last few years where major record companies, Sony, Warner, Universal, have got in there and, and clogged up the record pressing plants because there aren't that many in the world anymore. They were all yeah. dismantled oh. in the 80s and 90s. So... You know, it's really they really clogged it up. You know, if you ever if you could ever bank on anyone trying to destroy the record industry, it's Sony, Universal, and Warner. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they've, got, they've got a great history of it. But so all the independent labels, their catalogs were getting pushed back. Like people who are actually just wanting to use the pressing plants to release albums around this time of year, they, this became this kind of bottleneck, and the kind of aggression came at the majors because they were clogging up with pressing like 10,000 copies of a Taylor Swift. Oh, you know, Taylor's fine, but yeah. 10,000 copies were... buying? Not really, no, because they're still trying to sell them off the next record store day. They kind of, you know, didn't miss the point uh, miss the point with it and, yeah. Yeah, because I can't imagine, like, all the Taylor Swift fans going, oh, I better get down to the record store and buy... Like, they wouldn't no. have anything to play it on, yeah. you know? <laughs> they could just hold it up. <laughs> they, yeah. They get excited, I guess, that it, that it is an artefact. And, you know, they would buy a Taylor Swift pencil probably as well if they were limited edition for the day. But, um... Uh, yeah, so I think that seems to be chilling out a little bit now. Like, they seem to be kind of backing off a little bit. Because no one was buying the records. No one was buying <laughs> them, yeah. So, like, every year people do release, like, crazy records. Like, Jack White is really famous for put, pressing, you know, a limited edition of 100 records with, like, a spider inside sure. of it and stuff. Yeah. Like, he loves the novelty of a, an interesting vinyl. Uh, is there any local bands that are putting out special bits and pieces that you know of? There's local bands that are doing... Um, uh, seven inches for the day, um, but nothing kind of as like you know you got to have a lot of money to do that kind yeah. of stuff. We don't really get many of those vinyls into Australia, do we? Like, do we have access to those really limited we edition get, runs? Yeah, we get like we do get a fair amount, and there's um, like a couple local distributors who work really hard for the record stores in Australia as well. Um, notably, kind of Rocket and Inertia in Sydney, they work really hard to get. Uh, any kind of labels that they deal with, their limited edition. So things like the Third Man records are available here as well. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Now, what about some um, streaming <coughs> services and the, the the growth of them? Are they have they had a big impact on, you know, the people's attitudes to vinyl and the music business generally? Definitely. They definitely all had a hit when they come in. Every time something else happens, you feel it in your shop, and record stores have just dealt with you know thing after thing, format changes. 
you know, downloading, illegal downloading, iTunes, streaming, every every kind of second year there's something that you go, okay, here we go, let's see how we go through Spotify now and stuff. But at the end of the day, people who want to buy records are still buying records, people who it means something to, and that's coming through in a younger generation as well. What it means is that people get to hear the records before they buy them, so you can't really sell a shit record anymore. Because yeah, people right. know that it yeah. is Damn. before. No, it's a good. It's a good thing. Like I prefer people just to get the records that are really good. You know. That's a shame for cash converters. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, you've written about high fidelity before because I think when everyone thinks of record store owners, they think of um, Rob Gordon, and I do like to think of you as Melbourne's as Melbourne's very own Rob Gordon. <laughs> uh, and I know that you once wrote, "There's only a hairline difference between a person running a record store and a person running a fantasy gaming store." Mm. And I love that quote because to me, it's you admitting that you're just a big music nerd. Do you think that that's half the appeal for people as well, still to be able to go into a store and talk to a music nerd like you um, about? music for like an hour if they want to I, th- I think it is like it is it definitely is for me i mean i love going into other records stores. i love going to north side and talking to chris you know because yeah. he's a you know very funky nerd but he's yeah. still a nerd <laughs> and i love i love sitting behind the counter with him and listening to him talk to customers as well but it is but it is that it's like we are you know really obsessed with records and buying records and music still you know to this day they're they're kind of one of the some of the most obsessed people that you'll meet and we haven't stopped since we were kids this kind of fanaticism so it's like when everybody else was out there you know becoming adults we were still <laughs> listening and behind records. Yeah, yeah yeah is there any um do you have a particular dream piece of vinyl is there any record that you know you've always wanted to find in a dusty secondhand shop somewhere there's always like a couple of there's always I've always got a list on the go kind of thing. I've always I've never got the the Shags Philosophy of the World record, which I I love a lot, and I need to get that one day. But the, you know the first pressing of that is like goes for like two and a half thousand dollars or et cetera online kind of thing. Mm. It's your child's educa- education for a year, yeah. maybe. <laughs> I'll, I'll make my choice when yeah. the time comes. <laughs> hey, so there's a bunch of stuff happening around Melbourne for Record Store Day. Do you have? Do you, can you tell us a little bit yeah, about what's going on? There's heaps. So. Um, uh, like Northside have Remy and GL playing. Basement. So this got, is tomorrow, yeah. This is tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, basement discs in the city have the models and raised by Eagles and Russell Morris. Gravel have a Bowie Day, which sounds unreal. Oh, with yeah. Tim Rogers and Mick Harvey and Dan Kelly are playing tracks. Uh, Record Paradise of Jess Ribeiro and Ella Hooper. Danny Walsh band. There's so much going on. But all the other record stores, there's going to be, like, great stock, particularly on the shelves. You try to make your shop look pretty special because it's such a big day. Yeah. So, you know, Poison City, round and round, searches. Like, just I encourage people to get out there and just try and visit as many as possible. What's happening at Polyester? At we've, got to give yourself some oh, yeah, props as yeah. well. <laughs> Too busy talking up everyone else. <laughs> um, we've got DJs during the day. You've got uh, our very own Phoebe Square. Your very own Phoebe Square. <laughs> yeah. Who we'll be stoked with. Have play some tunes. She's just yeah. holding up records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then streaming them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've got Total Giovanni DJs, stations and DJs from Listen as well. And we've got live performances from Ella Styles from Sydney, uh, Summer Flake and Hierophants. Is your little bar open out the back? A little bar's going to be open out the back yeah. as well. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. All right. We've been talking to Nate Knott from Polyester Records. Have a happy record store day and I hope lots of people get on down. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.